Welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. Firstly, an announcement. As some of you may know, I am a Jungian psychotherapist and I work in London. As a result of the podcast, I have had some inquiries whether I do psychotherapy online, on Skype or similar. The answer is yes. And following some of the dreams that have been part of the occasional podcast, I have been asked whether I do online sessions related specifically to dream analysis. Again, the answer is yes. I offer a short run of three to five sessions where dreams can be presented, often sent in advance and explored in online sessions. These are available for anybody listening to the podcasts. For more details, contact me at thepilgrimquest at gmail.com or contact details can be found on the website alamulhern.com. If some of you are coming fresh to this material, you may be confused with the word myth. In the ordinary sense of the word, if a story is a myth, it is simply not true. But in the Jungian sense, myths do not refer to literal events, but have psychological and spiritual meaning. They are symbolic. Now, these two meanings of myth apply very much to Jesus Christ, whose story has an extraordinary, unprecedented quantity of mythic material. In this, the second podcast on the spiritual hero and the podcast to follow in this mini-series, I wish to reflect on the following. The evidence for the stories of Jesus Christ, the authenticity of the Gospels and the vast accumulation of mythological material in Christian myth, the nature of myth, including how it can be used for mind control by religions, the archetypal and transpersonal significance of Jesus Christ using tools of depth psychology, and which of the images of Jesus Christ might best suit the spiritual needs of the 21st century. To begin with, the evidence for the existence of Christ, the authenticity of the Gospels, and what Christ did is, to speak frankly, problematic, difficult to evaluate, and subject to bias, since there are no independent witnesses, and even the Gospel writers were probably not witnesses themselves. The Gospels are full of exhortations to believe, but I have to ask you to treat this with caution. If one surrenders reason, then one can be persuaded into almost anything. If one neglects one's own spiritual experience and simply accepts and believes what one is told, then that, I suggest, is a danger. I also encourage you to ask why the Gospels are so full of this exhortation to believe. Does any other religion do this? Could it be that the stories are incredulous to the point of superstition and require the suspension of reason and the commitment to a belief in what would have appeared impossible? Divine parentage, virgin birth, miracles in profusion, descent into hell to open its gates, the resurrection of the dead, the liberation of all humanity the ascension into heaven, judge of the living and the dead, the second coming. The primary sources that the Catholic Church accepted were the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. These are the canonical Gospels, and they were gradually chosen by different geographic regions in the centuries after Christ, some preferring one Gospel, some another. The 27 books of the New Testament were only finalised by 367 AD by Athanasius of Alexandria, and were selected from a much larger group of possibilities. During the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, there was increasing pressure to codify and systematise an accepted canon, to have a central creed, 
to unify the rituals and sacraments of the Church, and to eliminate doctrinal differences. And in the 4th century, the biggest event in Christianity since the times of Christ and Paul happened. Constantine decriminalised Christianity in 313, and by 325 had called the Council of Nicaea, attended by bishops all over the Eastern and Western Empire, so that fundamentals of doctrine could be established. By the time of the Emperor Theodosius in 380 AD, Christianity was declared the state religion. These fundamental political events rocketed the Church from a previously illegal and sometimes detested cult to the religion of the Roman Empire. An extraordinary enantio drama, that is, a turning into its opposite. The Church had to get its act together, agree and codify its doctrines, sacraments and rituals, for it was determined to be in control, practically a totalitarian one, to dominate the minds and souls of an expanding Christendom, which was always imperiled, always in a battle against the forces of darkness, persecution by the Romans in the early centuries, the internal threat of the Gnostics, who were branded as heretics, the disintegration of the Roman Empire, the invading barbarians, much later the forces of Islam, and then the rise of the scientific enlightenment. Oh yes, and the root of it all, that obscure God-man called Jesus Christ, who, as the centuries rolled by, became engulfed by the most extraordinary myths. The Church had to establish clear evidence for his existence, his teachings, his deeds, and his extraordinary spiritual status. Most members of the Church, to this day, believe that the four Gospel writers were among the original Twelve Apostles. But there is no solid evidence for this. The Gospels were compiled decades after the alleged events and stem from Christian authors eager to promote Christianity, which gives us reason to question them. The authors of the Gospels fail to name themselves, to make it clear if they personally witnessed Christ, or, if not, to indicate their sources. Matthew and Luke's Gospels follow very closely that of Mark's. For example, they contain practically all its material, but add to it, which points to the primacy of Mark's material. But they do not admit this. Filled with mythical and non-historical information, the Gospels certainly are problematic evidence. The Synoptic Gospels, that is, those of Matthew, Mark and Luke, were written, most scholars believe, between 66 AD and 110 AD. Mark's was written first, then Matthew and Luke. Most scholars believe that all three were second-generation Christians, writing after the destruction of the Temple, 70 AD. John's Gospel is slightly less biographical and is a more mediated experience through another lens, including a Neoplatonic one, probably written between 90 and 110 AD, that is, even later than the others. Luke was companion to Paul, but he was never named as one of the original apostles in the Gospels. The Acts of the Apostles was almost certainly written by him. Luke names the twelve apostles in verse 12 to 15 of his Gospel. He says, When morning came, he, that is Christ, called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also designated apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, 
Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Neither was Paul an original apostle for that matter. He had never seen Christ, but was converted by a vision of him after Christ's death. However, he did claim apostleship because of this vision. Matthew might have been the Roman tax collector, the apostle, but he does not say in the Gospel that he was. Mark was the secretary and translator to Peter, who apparently loved him as a son, but there is no evidence of him being an original apostle or having known Christ personally. The author of John's Gospel might have been the beloved apostle, but it is unlikely. If any of the Gospel writers were personal witnesses to Christ, surely they would have said so loud and clear. But they never say they were, and that is almost certainly because they weren't. The prevailing opinion among scholars, who sift the evidence very carefully and more independently than those possessed solely of faith, is that some, probably all, were second generation. They may well have been attempting to preserve or codify the memory of Christ for what was a growing movement outside of Judea and Palestine, The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the Jewish diaspora added to the conversions to Christianity. Besides this, there were increasing numbers of Gentiles accepting this religion. They needed a coherent, systemised account of Jesus Christ. Incidentally, it is not generally accepted that the letters of Peter, which are part of the New Testament, written from Babylon by an educated man who commanded the Greek language, were by the Apostle Peter who, as everyone knows, was a fisherman from Galilee. Moreover, they have been dated at around 80 AD, since they make reference to persecutions, and this was after Peter's death. To add to the difficulties, the extant, that is, any hard copy that has survived, manuscripts of the Gospels that have been dated come much later. We don't have the early original ones. The earliest we have of Matthew is dated at 150 to 250 AD. Mark's is dated at 250 AD, Luke's at between 175 to 250 AD, and John's 125 to 250 AD. So most scholars disagree that the authors of the Gospels were part of an inner circle of apostles, and the evidence points against it. Non-Christian sources for Christ's existence, even, are scanty and again come long after his death. They include mentions, for example, by Flavius Josephus and Tacitus, the Roman historian. Firstly, Flavius Josephus, a Jew and Roman citizen, born after Christ died, wrote in 93 AD in his Testimonium Flavanium that Jesus, quote, was the Christ. When Pilate, upon the accusation of the first men amongst us, condemned him to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him, for he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvellous things concerning him. Unquote. Some of this does not sound authentic, the language resembling that of the Gospels. Most scholars believe that some of this text has been altered. Tacitus, writing around 116 AD, mentioned Christianity and Christus. In describing Nero's persecution of this group following the great fire of Rome, he wrote, Nero fastened the guilt of starting the blaze 
and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. Unquote. Most scholars conclude that the passage was written by Tacitus. Now, despite the above problematic evidence, there is, in my view, enough historical references and indications to believe that Jesus lived. Paul's huge mission and the very influential writings could not have been done had he not known from the other apostles that Christ had indeed lived. The Gospels, although written decades after Christ lived, do point to a real figure. But there was nothing written by Christ himself, or as far as we can judge by his apostles. We are already looking through a glass darkly. There was certainly enough time and enough motive for an increasing mythology to gather around the figure of Christ. We need to remember how credulous humans have been for most of history, how inclined to believe in the supernatural origin of things, how the impact of Greek science had not filtered down to the poorer strata of the populations in the Near East at this time, how wrapped they were in superstition, how easily impressed and how susceptible they were to otherworldly claims. The Near East around the time of Christ swarmed with eschatological movements, end of the world material. For example, the Gnostics, who also had a vast armory of fantastic otherworld mythology, which indicated that a messenger would be sent from the Pleroma, from an incredibly distant father, and there would be a mighty conflict between good and evil. Christ may appear to us now as a bolt from the blue, but there was a long history and expectancy of a Messiah, a Saviour, a Messenger, that would bring liberation and salvation. Let us not underestimate either the enormous impact of the Roman Empire, its military, technological and cultural domination of the Near East, which had long fallen into decadency and had been taken over by the Greeks in the 4th century, Alexander the Great, and subsequently by the Romans. This occupation was brutal and enormously resented and the longed for liberation was increasingly seen as a political act of freedom from Rome as well as the stifling Jewish authorities. In my view, Christ was a holy man, healer, exorcist, easily confused with elements of Jewish revolt and was crucified. The Jewish authorities in particular regarded him as dangerous, blasphemous and threatening their position. There had been numerous Jewish revolts against the Romans, who had just about had enough and were quite capable of erasing the fragile Jewish state altogether. Indeed, this is exactly what they did later. They eventually had enough of the Jews, with their religion, their temple, their god and their revolts. In 70 AD, they sent in the legions and captured Jerusalem, held by rebels since 66 AD, destroyed the city and the temple, Josephus, who was a personal witness to the event, claims that over a million, mostly Jews, for it was the Passover, were killed. Even accounting for exaggeration, it was an appalling slaughter by the enraged Roman state, and the beautiful city of Jerusalem was destroyed. Subsequently, there were still some rebel strongholds, famously and finally at Masada, whose walls the Romans breached in 73 AD. Josephus says that nearly all of the Jewish defenders had committed mass suicide rather than fall to the Romans. Subsequent revolts and repressions 
led to a huge diaspora of Jews out of Palestine. Now, this was the brutality that was facing the Jewish state and its people. The Pharisees and Sadducees in charge of the Jewish religious state were very concerned that Christ, yet another teacher, liberator, supposed redeemer, might provoke another revolt and bring down the wrath of the Romans. And they were not being paranoid in the least. They had every reason to crack down on internal revolts that could light the fire of Jewish resistance and provoke Roman reaction. According to all the Gospels, the Romans did not see Christ as dangerous as the Jewish authorities did. If only Jesus had said he was not the King of the Jews. If only he had not enraged the Sadducees and Pharisees. He would have got away with a bad beating. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, declared he could see no wrong in him. He probably saw him as deranged, but the Jewish authorities insisted on his guilt, the danger of a growing revolt, that he claimed to be king of the Jews when their only king was Caesar, and that he should be punished and crucified. The Jewish authorities were terrified of the Roman state cracking down upon them. As far as the early Christians and anybody else in the Near East were concerned, the Romans were bad enough, but the Jewish authorities were hand in glove with them. So, in summary, the Gospels, the supposed authoritative evidence for Jesus, written by some of the inner circle of apostles, are problematic. However, they, along with Paul's writings, point to a real Jesus of great charisma who lived at a time prior to their writings, who said many remarkable things of a spiritual nature and with great authority, who had a small band of followers and who was crucified since he clashed with the Jewish authorities at a fraught and dangerous period of their history. Mark, who was probably the young secretary and translator of Peter the Apostle, therefore educated and capable of writing an account, and who knew the other apostles, wrote the first gospel many years after Christ's death. Matthew's and Luke's gospel followed this. Enough time had passed for amazing tales and fantastical legend to gather around the increasingly mythical figure of Christ. The most famous of these is the resurrection of Christ, which Paul, actually writing around 50 AD, and therefore prior to the Gospels, made central to his version of Christianity. And this particular myth, believed so passionately by this extraordinary self-appointed apostle, who had once been the persecutor of the Christians, was to pass on into the Gospels and out into the wider Christian community an incredible message of hope to increasing numbers who could no longer believe in the decaying Roman Hellenic gods and especially not in the divinity of emperors. So, Christ lived and died. But did he die and live? In our next podcast, we examine the authenticity of the Gospels, the mythology that surrounded Christ and which became so central to Christianity and the civilization it was to shape.